Over on the right, Chris. Hi, David. Uh, Chris Sheridan from SheridanHoops.com. It's been uh, two months now since you vetoed the Chris Paul to the Lakers trade, and uh, it's given you two months of the benefit of hindsight and two months to look at the impact that it's had on several teams, Clippers, Lakers, but especially the Hornets. And given the benefit of that hindsight, was that veto, since you had never done one before, was it the right thing to do, and why? Should I answer? Okay. You've been around too long to phrase the question that way. That's I didn't, veto, I didn't veto anything. Acting on behalf of the owners, as the owner's rep, uh, New Orleans decided not to make the trade. Well, whose decision was it to, to stop the trade? No, no, uh, not to stop. No, no, not to stop. There's no superstar that gets traded in this league unless the owner says, go ahead with it. And in the case of New Orleans, the representative of the owner said, that's not a trade we're going to make. But that representative was you, if I'm right. Correct. Well, so, in effect, then, you said the trade is not going to go through. I said that New Orleans would not make the trade uh, that had been proposed to them. And was that the right move to make? You know, you buy a ticket and see. We'll see how it works out. Watch a movie. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Clash, clash. Strawberry banana. Oh, Please don't, don't aggregate this. Lillard, long range three. Ah! Yeah. defense is atrocious. Atrocious. I'm the rock star. Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows how I feel about aggregation. I'm oddly intrigued by neck tattoos. Yeah, we love China. We love no playing there. Oh, man, I'm sorry. It's just hitting me right now. Shut up and listen. You think you're better than me? All right, we're back. This is Swish FM, Chris Wendelkin and Ben Croft. Ben, I guess it was like a month ago, maybe six weeks ago. I forget. I, so I started getting, I know, really annoying. Uh, I was texting you basically every like hour or two telling you that you needed to stop what you were doing and you needed Ugh. to listen to this podcast called The Whistleblower, which... God, Chris, I got enough people texting me, oh, listen to this podcast, listen to that podcast. You know, it's there's a million annoying. of them out I know, there. I know. What am I going to do? Listen, so the, the podcast, it's called The Whistleblower Podcast. It investigates the betting scandal surrounding ex-NBA referee Tim Donaghy. Donaghy? Donaghy? What, whatever. So Donaghy no worked uh, NBA games for 13 years, and then in 2007... Vis-a-vis a Gambino crime family wiretap, uh, he resigned when the FBI discovered that he'd been fixing uh, and betting on games that he was refereeing. So ultimately, Donaghy goes to jail. He pleads guilty on two counts, serves 15 months in federal prison. Uh, the Whistleblower podcast explores the scandal and surmises, I think, basically that Donaghy didn't act alone, and the NBA league office not only knew about the games being manipulated and controlled, they, in fact, were deeply involved. So our guest today, Ben, is a journalist, producer, host, the, the, uh, the man behind the Whistleblower podcast, Tim Livingston. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking a few minutes to talk. I hope I uh, accurately <laughs> described your podcast. No, I appreciate it, Chris. That was a hell of an intro. Uh, one take, everybody, and Chris just yeah fucking nailed it. He's an actor, folks. <laughs> yeah. Listen, this is his gift. Yeah. All right, this is what he does. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you guys for having me. Excited to 
to talk a little whistleblower. I haven't I haven't done an interview in a minute, so I got all this pent up energy and emotion Ooh, from right. watching from watching the NBA over the past couple months. And yeah, you know, my boy Scott Foster's been been all over the place, and there's been, <sighs> He's been so in the many, news a little bit lately. Yeah, so much like you know bad you know replay bungling and just just great oh refereeing like i because i'm that guy on twitter now i guess where people come to to be like hey did you see this ter-? so i get all that fed to me on social <laughs> media which is um again a blessing and a curse for those who love basketball and love the art of the sport but also are now cognizant of the other side the the dirty side so um all right great, so great to be on tim for our audience some of our audience maybe hasn't heard the podcast yet so can we maybe start with like a very broad bird's eye view from above and then we can delve into some of the specifics. But first, just give us like a really quick snapshot of who Tim Donaghy is. Like, who is this guy? He worked for the NBA for 13 years as a ref. Um, like, what's his backstory? Where did he come from? How did he get into refereeing? All that. So Donaghy is originally from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, uh, which is a blue collar town outside of Philadelphia that has bred in a an incredible amount of referees, NBA referees over the years. So we like to, I'm sure as fans, think that referees or umpires or the men and women who are in charge of policing the games that we watch and love and bet on are, it's a meritocracy, that they're the best of the best, that they've gone through the system, that they've you know, done an incredible amount of work and, and really earned their spot at the top of the food, at the you know, top of the chain. Tim Donahue got an NBA refereeing job at 27. His uncle was an NBA referee. His father was a college referee. It was pure nepotism, as many referees of that era were, you know, benefited from. So Donahue gets an NBA job at 27. You know, he's making really good money for a 27-year-old that, you know, cheated his way on the SAT into Villanova and really had no didn't, didn't know that little detail yeah <laughs> yeah uh i don't know if he's working with singer and you know the la the la crowd um i don't know if he took a picture on a rowing machine or what but donahy got into villanova you know cheating on his sat to do so and and timmy would tell you that um with with no hesitation and and while you know dusting his shoulders off so so tim gets an nba job at 27 and from what we understand you know the first decade or so in the league he was a pretty good referee. I mean, these referees, the, the refereeing culture was an absolute shit show from the get-go. I mean, these guys were drinking and partying and living like rock stars, going from city to city, um, had, I, I would say in most cases, less attractive groupies than the NBA players. But, like, you know, they were, they were hooking up with stewardess and just other people that lived that lifestyle. Um, there was definitely that atmosphere um, in his first decade in the league, they're also going to casinos a lot with the players. Um, Donahue, one interesting thing that he said since whistleblowers that Scott Foster, who's a character we explore a lot, he's he's starting to put out hints. He said Scott Foster loved loved to gamble. Never said that before. Nobody's really picked up on that. But all these guys love to gamble. Um, after to go on a little aside, after the NBA, uh, after this huge scandal, which we'll get into in a second, um, he. The NBA commissioned a report uh, called the Pedowitz Report, which investigated all the all the league's referees and whether or not they were potentially complicit in this thing. And although, not surprisingly, the NBA commissioned report um, did not 
see that any of these NBA referees should be fired or reprimanded or, you know, in any, in any way. Uh, now, hang on there, Tim. You, I believe it was an independent investigation. So uh, it seems totally above board to, in my That's, eyes. Ben, you know? you're, you're, you're correct. Excuse me. Okay. It was an independent investigation. <laughs> David Stern. Let's be fair to, to Lawrence Pedowitz, okay? Yes, uh, Pedowitz. I can't. I'm just imagining David Stern looking over and just making his red lines and telling <laughs> Lawrence, how could you put this in here, idiot? <laughs> But it concluded, I think, that 90, you know, 90 plus percent of NBA referees admitted to Pedowitz, the guy who did this report, that they engaged in uh, various forms of gambling prohibited by the NBA. So the culture was uh, yeah. the culture was ripe for corruption. Corruption. Tim Donahue got caught. Um, he started betting on games. Um, three years prior to getting caught, it was small time. And, and again, you got to you got to think about how easy it is for a referee to have an effect on the outcome of a game versus the point spread. You know, if, if you want a really bad team in the NBA to beat a really good team, that's not, that's really hard to, you know, you gotta be a real maestro if you're a referee um, to pull that one off without it being incredibly obvious. It's doable by the way, but it's, <laughs> it's harder to manipulate a game, you know, in that way. But if a, if it's a seven point spread, Lakers are favored over the Celtics and you want the Lakers to cover, well, if you start calling a lot of fouls on the Celtics in the second quarter, you're in a really good spot to, you know, to potentially yeah. manipulate that game. Anyway, so so Donahue starts betting on games. It gets bigger and bigger, and eventually he brings in two guys, Tommy Martino and James Jimmy Baba Batista. And, yes, those names are real. Um, he brings in uh, Batista, who's you know very very big in the gambling world, as a sheet maker, and and this is interesting. Getting the weeds of gambling, Jimmy Batista wasn't a better. He worked with betters to make their to put their bets in a lot of different places and try and keep those bets under the radar as much as possible. You can't most most sports books in Vegas. If you go and try and place a million dollar bet, that's going to be too much liability. And they, and they also know that you probably got something, right? So right. Batista spread out money for, for gamblers, you know, from Vegas to Macau to, you know, mm. all the European sports books, on and on. So Donahue teams up with Batista. Um, they're making what they claim to be a small amount of money, which I believe to be a very large amount of money, now betting on games that Tim Donahue's refereeing. Tim Donahue claims that he never fixed a game. Tim Donahue claims that he was refing all these games despite having, you know, Batiste involved, which meant that the Gambino crime family was involved, which meant that a lot of people were now involved in the scheme. And, and Donahue knows that. And that's in the back of his mind. But he claims he never made any calls that were incorrect, um, it, which is a fascinating argument because of the incredible gray area and what constitutes a foul. Right. right. So mm -hmm. does a referee ever get a call wrong? Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Um, or, yeah. Or it's just human error. It's just, yeah. yeah, you know, like block charge. Yep. It's eye I, the beholder. So <laughs> that's what this podcast is about. It's really about, that's that's Donahue. Hopefully that paints a picture of him as a character, where he came yeah. from, what he did, and and why this story, as you can imagine, takes has a lot of twists and turns and goes a lot of crazy places. So for a gambling novice like myself, can you really quickly explain what exactly did Donaghy do when we're talking about fixing a game versus manipulating a game? What exactly is the difference? And also I've heard you mention this thing, head fakes. Uh, can, can you like very succinctly just explain 
uh, how, like what Tim Donaghy would do on any given game on a night? Yeah, so a head fake, that's a betting thing. We'll get to that in a second. But on any given night, there's a point spread, right? So, you know, again, using the Lakers-Celtics example, which, you right. know, those two, two fairly well-known NBA teams, I think we use that uh, in a majority of the podcast when talking about gambling. So the Lakers are seven-point favorites against the Celtics. Now, if you're going to fix the game and you want the underdog, the Celtics, to win, that's one thing, right? That's going to take most likely some work. If the Lakers, if Vegas thinks the Lakers are a better team and right. the teams are both playing in that, you know, to their to the ability, you know, there's, there's obviously anomalies at sports, right? The Celtics could come out and fire, not miss a shot, and win the game by 50. Uh, same thing with the Lakers. But most games are played within, you know, both teams. Like, we, we know who the players are, what to expect, and, and what the, the general computer-generated outcome is going to be. So fixing a game, if you're you know betting on the Celtics to win, or if you're an, if you're a referee trying to trying to fix the game, the Celtics need to win the game, and that is hard to pull off, right? I mean, it's probably going to take a lot of fouls. Um, it could in the fourth quarter, if you need that team to win, and the Lakers are up by seven in the fourth quarter, I mean that's that's work. You know, you really got to do some. You you really have to do some obvious stuff, which referees have done before. To, to make the game close and to give the Celtics a chance to win. Now, however, in that same example, if the Lakers are up by seven in the fourth quarter and you need the, and you need the Celtics to cover the spread, you just need them to, to, you know, to lose by six points or less, that becomes a little bit more manageable because you can make a couple of controversial foul calls and that lead can narrow accordingly. Um, so it becomes a much easier and also... Look, if you're a Lakers fan and they win by, and you're not betting on the game, and the Lakers win by six or eight, do you care? No. So right. that's what's there's no there's no public outcry at all as long as the favorite team still wins because pe- most people don't think about the point spread. Ex- exactly. And now with sports betting becoming more and more, uh, you know, with with the legalization of sports betting, it's something that is becoming a lot more not only for your average sports fan, but for the media as well. You know, Scott Van Pelt has his bad beat segment. There's, there's like a lot of people that talk about sports betting and bad beats and, and controversial calls that determine that sway hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on a game. Cause that's now becoming commonplace, but yeah, it's, it's really, and during this era, you guys, I mean, this is like mid two thousands, there's no social media, right? If you're, if it's the Hornets, Timberwolves to, mediocre mediocre teams in 2006 and it's a mid-season game nobody's watching that game nobody cares right or very few people care and if you're tim donahue and you can make a couple calls and manipulate that game against the point spread there you go right it's it's not like if you make 10 calls at the end of the game and the hornets emerge a winner over the timberwolves like that might raise some eyebrows if you if you make a couple of controversial calls in garbage time which is the end of the game when the victor is most likely decided, it, it raises a lot less eyebrows. So that's that's the gambling portion of this. Head fakes are really yeah. is a really interesting phenomenon, and and this is kind of why you should not be very careful betting with offshore unregulated sites. But oh, that's the only place I bet. Tim. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, d- well, ditto. I mean, Whoops. that's up until <laughs> recently. So um, head fakes were there was. A sports book, um, and, and we'll get to them in a second. But basically, head fakes were Batista when he was betting money on Donahue's games. He would bet, let's say, five hundred thousand dollars on the wrong side. So he'd wake up in the morning, 
you know, let's use the Lakers-Celtics example. You know, the Celtics are the bet. You'd bet $500,000 on the Lakers. And so all the sports books across the world would adjust their lines. And now instead of a seven-point spread, it'd be an eight-and-a-half-point spread, right? Just giving him even more, um, you know, even more Donahue, even more leeway um, when he ultimately refs the game. So then, yeah, the, the line would be eight-and-a-half. You know, that's the head fake. You know, he faked out all the sports books. They adjust the line because that's what sports books do. They're trying to really have 50% of money on one side, 50% on the other side. They take their rake. There's no risk. Sports books don't like risk. So half a million dollars on one side, that's a lot of risk for any sports book. They don't like that. Um, they want more money to come in on the other side. So again, that's where most people sports betting think like the sports books, oh, you know, one side, and again, there are those examples, but really they just want 50% of money on each side. They take their rake. That's it. So that's a head fake. And what, what, when you're moving a lot of money, you can do. You can bet a lot of money on the wrong side and then come back right before the game and bet a lot of money on the right side and win a lot of money. Because you've, you've now, you knew what the bet was. You have a referee manipulating the game and you have an extra point and a half. So for whatever yeah. reason, Donahue doesn't, Donahue, whoever's ref in the game and is in your pocket, doesn't do what they're supposed to do. You have a little bit of extra breathing room. And yeah, it's really, again, it's why, it's same as the stock market. It's really tough when you're, when you're the common man to compete with, with those forces. Hey, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't uh, ruin my dreams here, okay? I've got that, I've got that Robinhood account, um, pu- pushing all my chips in, okay? It's going to happen to me uh, one of these days. AMC, right? baby. Let's go. We got it. <laughs> so, Tim, your podcast, uh, The Whistleblower, uh, basically suggests that Donahue wasn't acting alone, right? Like the thesis, I think, among many other things, is basically that there was this coordinated effort, that there was this long institutionalized culture of gambling among NBA referees. And the NBA League office, again, like not only were they uh, aware of it, they were, in fact, coaching the referees basically on how to get certain big market teams to the NBA finals. I mean, for me, like the, yeah, like the, sorry to like cut in, but like the, the craziest part of the story. And I think the, the thing that the podcast does so well, the, like to, to lay it out is like, you sort of start with the top layer of the onion, which is this basically the big lie that the NBA sold the public after the Donaghy scandal erupted, which was that, he was the one rogue ref. He was the bad apple. We caught him. It's all good now. Everyone can relax and, you know, go back to enjoying their basketball games every night, uh, buying their tickets and their posters and their sneakers and their basketball cards. And it was a lie that everyone just accepted. Uh, media, fans alike, everyone was just like, oh, cool. Okay, great. Thank- that's good. And then the sort of like next layer of the onion is like, oh, actually, it turns out Donaghy wasn't the only ref. There were lots of refs that were doing shady stuff for all sorts of different reasons. Um, usually because of their, uh, you know, involvement with, you know, less, uh, savory characters, I guess you could say, um, whether they were, you know, gambling or in the, you know, sort of more even like darker criminal, uh, realms. Um, and so then you're like, oh, so the real story is that there were more refs like Donaghy and it was actually a big problem that the NBA wasn't controlling and, you know, they were doing a terrible job of like fixing this like systemic problem. And you're like, okay, so that's the big story. But actually, the really big story that, not to like give anything away, and obviously like everyone who's listening to this podcast should um, push pause and listen to your podcast first, I would hope. Um, but um, 
uh, yeah, I mean, if, if uh, no one minds giving away the, the kind of like, <laughs> you know, ending here, uh, or at least like one of the one of the big upshots is that, in fact, the NBA was managing this crisis. They were, in fact, orchestrating it in many ways. Um, and they were very much, you know, working with <laughs> these referees and um, and and uh, and manipulating them and, you know, pulling strings and and. You know, it wasn't a, a scandal that they didn't know about that they couldn't manage the right way. In fact, they knew everything and they were actively participating <laughs> in this thing. Um, and it's, yeah, like basically like, you know, when you think you you know, like the bigger story, there's an even bigger story. And then, you know, there is even stuff beyond that that gets into like politics and, you know, business and like just basically, you know, as high up as you want to go uh, or down this rabbit hole, um, you know, you sort of take people there. So, yeah, like now that we've sort of covered Donaghy a little bit and like sort of what he was doing as a, as a single actor, I, th- I think, yeah, let's talk a little bit about like who was the actual, you know, where, where was the actual power? Um, who was, you know, sort of the actual re- responsible party, I guess, in this whole story? Yeah, um, I mean, David Stern is such a fascinating character. Ding, ding. <laughs> David, David Stern said, and this is kind of the, the top, top level, he said on Dan Patrick, I believe it was in 04, you know, Patrick asked him who his dream NBA Finals matchup would be, and he said Lakers versus Lakers. That comment alone, if you think about, if you're a, a referee hearing that comment, think about how manipulative and and brilliant, frankly, that comment is to put out into the public, right? So Yeah, I mean, the guy came right out and said it. He basically admitted it on the record. <laughs> Stern is so fascinating. Um, <laughs> I mean, also, like, you know, what, like, look, none of these refs were angels or anything like that, but, like, if your boss tells you, hey, this is the end outcome that I want, I would really like this end outcome, it will be the best thing for our business, like gambling stuff aside it's hard to unhear that right like you are sort of trying to just from a sheer like i'm trying to preserve my job survival sort of mode you are kind of like hey i want to stay in the good graces of my boss and that is part of one of the major problems with this story which your podcast does a beautiful job shedding light on is that like this is not an independent agency these referees like they are not independent of David Stern uh, and Adam Silver, like they are employees. Like they might not want to identify as such, but they are effectively taking marching orders, whether they want to believe that or not. Talk a little bit about David Stern here. Yeah, and that's, it's very well said. Um, The referees get, there's just such clear, when you really boil it down, there's just such clear motivation for the referees to put the big market teams and big market stars into the finals, right? Because they're getting graded by the various characters. There's a, there's a whole grading system for referees. Um, and the, the grading system really is manipulated by the NBA. So the referees who do a good job of pushing the top teams, and again, this is during this era, it's gotten a little bit better. I think Adam Silver has cleaned it up a little bit. So I don't want to say it's going on. It's not as egregious today as it was 20 years ago. 15 years ago um, because David Stern didn't give a fuck. He didn't. Um, he, he said that comment, he said comments publicly because he just, he liked fucking with everybody. Yeah. He was a wrestling heel. He, he liked, he's Vince McMahon. I mean, he just liked being that guy. He liked asserting power. Talk about any meeting, whether it was a collective bargaining agreement meeting or just like a casual meeting, 
you know, David Stern, you know, he could, he pretended like he was ignorant of certain things going on in the NBA at this time. David Stern knew everything. David Stern would stop you. You know, you hear like Rod Thorne, who's an, you know, I think a VP or an SVP in the NBA, former Bulls general manager, like Rod Thorne tells stories where, you know, David Stern would stop you and ask you a question that he knew the answer to. And if he didn't know, if you didn't know the answer and know it in detail, then yeah, he, uh, he would rip you apart. And that was just, that was just his, that's just how we operate. I was talking with, uh, Jason Hare, who, you know, um, directed the last dance. Great, great dude. And Jason was talking about his meetings, similar meeting with Stern where it's like, you know, who the fuck are you? <laughs> just every, every time, every Stern anecdote you hear is the same thing. Um, and so for him to pretend like the NBA didn't know what was going on and had no idea that it's referees, were, were fixing games is ludicrous. But really, there, there was a system in place. So there was a grading system that promoted referees that complied with the NBA's agenda up the ladder. And then there was also communication from the NBA to referees, right? David Stern's way too smart to send a memo saying, hey, the Lakers need to beat the Kings in 2002, right? That's never going to happen. But if you look at the way the NBA communicates with its referees, what they did often was they sent memos saying, hey, uh, Shaq's not getting enough foul calls in the low post, right? So Donahue describes this in, in Houston, Dallas, when he worked the playoffs in, in 2006. You know, Mark Cuban complains that Yao Ming is setting illegal screens. The NBA communicates that the referees need to um, call Yao Ming for legal screens. Houston's up 2-0 in the series. The message in my eyes is, hey, Dallas needs to win a couple games. This is a really good series. We've got a big market in Texas. We need this. We need this series to even up, right? And I think if there's two ways of there's two types of human beings. There's types of human. There's the we've definitely heard from people who are like you're you're reading into this. This is not okay. Fine, sure, right? But I think ninety. What I've been. I thought there was gonna be a lot more of those people. I say ninety eight percent of people that listen to whistleblower. I think we presented enough evidence to where a lot of people were like, oh, this this system like there's way too much here. For you to, I mean, look, there's a lot of people who think Jeffrey Epstein just like massages. <laughs> and I hate to compare the two because one is so much more insidious than the other, but at the, there's some people that are never going to believe it. And there's some people, if you, you know, I think we present enough evidence to where they can look at the system and look at the NBA's communication with its referees, look at how referees were, were promoted within, within that system and look at all these different forces and all the, all the money, really. I mean, you, you want to solve a mystery, you want to solve a scandal, you know, follow the money 90% yeah. of the time. Um, Not to mention the fact that referees were paid based on how many game, playoff games they referee. So if there's a series that could go four games or could go seven games, what do you think the referee prefers? <laughs> yeah, and they also get huge playoffs. It's like playoff, such an obvious conflict of interest. <laughs> and they get playoff bonus checks. So yeah. a huge portion of their income was based on, yeah. You're, it, all those factors, Ben, that's a good point. It's, it's, yeah. it's a lot of factors that make it very hard to believe that referees were just calling fouls based on the definition of a foul in the rule book. Yeah. Well, that's the, the the problem is there's no incentive to be impartial, right? Like you're literally incentivized uh, to cooperate with the league office, right? To, to follow the script, to follow the narrative. Tim, can you tell us a little bit about like some of the referees that whistleblower deals with and like what exactly is alleged and you can be as specific or as broad as need be. 
Um, but one guy that I'm really curious to talk about is Scott Foster, someone that we were talking about before. Foster is one of Donahue's best friends, someone that he called from a burner phone, I think you said 134 times over the course of five months during the height of the scandal. Like, how does this guy still have a job? I ask that in all seriousness. Like, it would seem like a very faulty business practice to have, like, you know, if we all worked in an office and there was someone that we worked with that had all these, like, crazy allegations against and there was lots of evidence that this person was like a bad actor. Uh, wouldn't it make sense just to like cut the head off the snake and just be like, eh, where there's smoke, there's fire. Let's just get this guy out of here. So you tell me, like, why do you think that someone like Scott Foster, there's a lot of smoke. Like, why, why does he still have a job? So in 2007, that was Stern's brilliant PR tactic, right? So we make an argument in the podcast that the NBA leaked the story of the scandal. And the reason that the NBA did that, we argue, and a lot of people you know, agree with this, and this is not just uh, me pulling this from thin air, this is all the attorneys and FBI agents involved with the case. This is their theory, which I agree with. Um, the reason the NBA leaked the scandal is because they, they needed to pin everything on Tim Donahue. So they wanted the scandal out there to be like, Tim Donahue, Tim Donahue, Tim Donahue. Remember that name? That is the guy. That is the rogue criminal in this case. That is the only, there was one bad referee. His name is Tim Donahue. Let's get the news out there. And that did two things. One, it alerted everybody in the NBA. Hey, don't talk about this thing, right? This is, this is bad. This is really bad for the NBA. This is potentially, you know, this could affect this business. This could cut this business in half if we don't play this right. Right. If it's one bad guy, we can we can sweep this thing under the rug in a couple of weeks. If the entire, if if half your referees are in on this, then nobody's going to trust you as a sport. It, this whole thing could crumble. So Scott Foster was best friends with Donahue, and it, starting when they started the same year, in 1997. Ha, you know, I've never met Scott Foster in person. Um, him and Donahue are cut from a very similar cloth. I've I've heard talk with a former NBA coach who described, you know, like the bouncer at a club that you hate, um, the cop that you hate, and the referee that you hate are all the same person, and it's Jesus. they're they're in this <laughs> they're in this position of power, right? That they, they they have a badge or they got a striped shirt or they got a, you know, they got they're deciding who crosses this threshold into the club. They have this power, and they're very weak people. And they're very insecure people, and they're they're people that I think most people don't like being around. Um, you know, there's a lot of borderline personality disorder I, for those who know psychology in there. A little bit of touch of sociopath and a touch of you know just being a dick. So Foster and Donahue I think are cut from that very very same cloth. Foster last year in the Thunder Rockets series, you know, talked shit to Chris Paul before the game. So you're looking at like not even the Donahue stuff. I mean, he's doing stuff today as the NBA's senior most official, which just makes your your blood curl. Is he currently the senior most official in the league? I think it's Foster. I think Foster's the number. You know, they don't have like actual rankings, but he's the guy. I mean, Foster. <laughs> Foster's the guy. I mean, when when we got in touch with you, I I, I told you the story by email that I'll share with the audience. Like, I uh, so I'm a huge. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a huge Knicks fan. And uh, there was a crucial game earlier, I guess in February or March, whatever it was, between the Knicks and the Nets. Really fun, competitive game. 
uh, Julius Randall is called for uh, s- some crucial call against Julius Randall in the final, you know, 20 seconds of the game. And it is blatant. It is obvious. All the commentators on TV are calling it out. And it turns out Scott Foster was the referee in the game. Julius Randle, after the game's irate, he's screaming at Foster. A wild finish, bizarre finish. Nick's doing some great things defensively down the stretch, but Julius Randle turned it over. He still wants more of an explanation. And Randle, very upset, after being pushed away by his teammates. And they're smart to get him away. The emotion's high for Julius Randle, who played brilliantly with 33 points, 12 rebounds, 6 assists. But the Knicks fall short. Look, yeah, I'm an expan, so I get it. Like, I'm always gonna, you know, have like, you know, uh, see things through uh, orange and blue colored glasses here. But it seemed like exceptional that like he was exceptionally mad at this guy. And then I go online on Twitter afterwards, and Damian Lillard calls out Foster by name. How can Scott Foster make that call against Julius? That seems really weird. Something's going on. So then I was like, wait a minute, Scott Foster. This is the guy from. Tim's podcast. This is the same fucking Scott Foster that that Tim Donaghy has a whole call record speaking with 134 times after games. Like this is insane that this guy still has a job. Still has a job. Yeah, and it's. I mean, the NBA like whistleblower has gotten a lot of downloads, which is very you know as, as somebody who worked on this story for so many years, the fact that it exists is amazing. The fact that it it's resonated with so many people is is even more amazing and and. Like it's done well, you know, the numbers, you know, millions of people have downloaded this podcast, but it hasn't reached that place in the zeitgeist. Um, like James Harden hasn't mentioned it. Right. Uh, I mean, there's, there could be a tipping point with our research to where the NBA has to comment, but until the NBA has to comment, they're not commenting, you know, until mm-hmm. a reporter asks Adam Silver point blank, what about the whistleblower podcast stuff on, on Scott Foster? Like the NBA, I assume is cognizant of our research and our work. And I think it's almost a common because, you know, if we were wrong, they would have jumped all over it. Been like, oh, this is I'm sure I would have got an email from Tim Frank, their, you know, SVP of communications being like, you're you're wrong about this. You're wrong about this. I haven't gotten that email either. Wow. So so there's not they're not arguing anything that we report, but they're also not commenting on it. And it's just it's interesting. And so that's why Scott Foster still has a job. Yeah, Scott Foster's a referee, because if you fire Scott Foster, then you're admitting that. You're, you're admitting you guilt. were right yeah, yeah. so the, mm-hmm. it's never it's never gonna happen i mean i'm sure it's on their radar enough to where they're kind of like ready to set him out to pasture and, the, and a big thing that that the nba does that's equally you know it's so brilliant and evil at the same time is that they keep all the referees on the payroll forever so when you after they're done refing yeah when you retire as a referee you're not just you know like joey crawford is still employed by the league still gets an nba paycheck i think i forget his title you know, you're like, oh, the head of official develop. Like, if you're one of these long tenured ref that knows where all the bodies are buried, they keep you on the payroll. Because what are you mm-hmm. going to do? You're 65 years old. You still want money. You still want to work, but you can't. You can't run up and down the court every game. Uh, you're not gonna. You can't go get another job if your ref. If your resume just says NBA referee from top to bottom, like that's that's all you know, and that's your that's your only real vocation, and that's kind of how this how this works it's fascinating but they these referees keep the secrets because of that because they really can't you know can't break them so you were talking about the reaction that the pod has received and that brought me to a question i had about like 
you know, I've, I've, I've seen, you know, a good amount of coverage of it, you know, in various outlets. I know you were on the Dan Patrick show, um, but I haven't seen you on, you know, ESPN or like NBA on TNT or Bleacher Report, for example. Um, and I thought that was kind of curious uh, because this is, I would think, a pretty big story that people would want to talk about. But um, I wonder, like, have you, what has your sort of reaction been to the reaction to the pod? Like, and I wonder if you, like me, can maybe make some sort of a, I don't know, throw out a hypothesis maybe about why certain media outlets maybe wouldn't want to delve too deeply uh, into this story because maybe wouldn't be so good for their business. Yeah, the media is, I mean, as a member of the media, it's just fascinating. Like, I was a freelancer. I, I wasn't employed by the NBA during this during the time of the scandal or when I wrote about it originally in 2012. So I had no, the NBA, in whether I was a beat reporter for the Warriors, the Lakers, or whoever, or, you know, a staff writer at ESPN and, and needed access to various mm-hmm. figures in the NBA, I didn't give, you know, I didn't care. I wrote about the first thing I wrote about the story is that I thought there was more of the scandal, and I thought Tim Donahue wasn't a rogue guy. I thought there was a real a real problem here, uh, a real systemic problem with the NBA and its officials. So that's how this all got started in the media. Like I, I get why, if you're writing for ESPN on the basketball beat, you got to be careful here that you can't do what I did and what we did with this story. Um, if you ever want to get anybody in the NBA as a source again, so. I get it, especially, you know, again, what's interesting about these stories is like enough time passes to where you can dive in and people are more willing to talk. And Phil Scala is retired from the FBI and Donahue's, you know, uh, for whatever reason, finally willing to talk with me. It just it it takes time in these things, too. But, yeah, the media's role, you know, Bleacher Report's owned by Turner. Good luck having you know, Turner and ESPN, multi-billion dollar partners with the NBA. Yeah. Doing a big expose on their like the business partner they're literally in bed with. <laughs> yeah. So like yeah. Lebitard, when he was ESPN, um, you know, I, I was on South Beach sessions with him. I think he really appreciated the journalism we did. I know Jamil Hill really appreciated the journalism we did. Uh, Dan Patrick, um, you know, guys, guys like that, but it never, you know, I got to hit up Ramona Shelburne cause she followed me on Twitter right after. And I love Ramona. I think she's mm-hmm. brilliant. Um, so I got to hit her up and maybe, try and get a little, you know, little, yo, what's up? Can we, can we get a, a feature on this on Scott Foster and just reference us or something? Like, can somebody of that ilk write about this story in a way that, that makes, that kind of elevates it and, and brings out a lot of the reporting we did? Because I think, you know, I think the work we did is important. If you're a sports fan, you really want to understand the way that, that things work behind the scenes. This is, I like whistleblower, and I think this story is important because it's, it's not just basketball, right? There's a lot of things societally that are just so shady, that just are so unfair and where the common man, the fan, gets screwed. Mm-hmm. Well, you came to the right place, Tim. Swish FM is really going to uh, champion the cause here. I mean, I love Ramona, too. You know, she, she's a friend, but, uh, you know, we're, oh, yeah. we're big, the guys big, that big are going to take listener, this story of course. To, to, the, to the next level. <laughs> All right, so while we're talking about the media, I wanted to ask about the Murray Weiss story. So I guess it was July 20th, 2007, Murray Weiss of the New York Post gets this anonymous tip. You talk about this in episode, whatever it is, five, six, whatever it is. He gets this anonymous tip 
and breaks news that the NBA has this referee who's being investigated by the FBI for potentially betting on games that he was refereeing. And it's a full-page headline fixed within hours. There's speculation of who the referee is. Donaghy's name comes out. And then Murray Weiss's article basically sabotages the FBI's ability to investigate who else was involved in the scandal, right? Other refs, league executives, whatever. So my question for you, Tim, is like the podcast pretty pointedly fingers the NBA, David Stern, as the source of the leak. And if the NBA was, in fact, the leaker, why do you think they didn't go to traditional you know, media companies like ESPN, TNT, Fox? Why the New York Post? Like what, what does that say about the motivations of the leaker to go to a place like the Post as opposed to something like TNT or, or ESPN? Yeah, I think... It's the post, you know, Murray, if you, if you listen to how they report stories, of the post, I think ESPN would have like, well, I think it, again, ESPN and Turner were in business with the, with the NBA at that point. Right. So it's, it's, we, we talked a lot about the TV contract signed right before all this came out. Um, so you gotta be, you gotta be really careful there. There's a, there's a lot of money at stake. New York post. If you listen to how Murray vetted a story, yeah, he, he got, I, I think enough corroboration to run it, but you know I think if it's um, New York Times as opposed to the Post, they probably right. do a little digging bit more. Yeah, do a little more, do a little more digging, right? I mean, uh, I forget the Murray Weiss title. I think just NBA ref, like NBA in a fix, right? All yeah. caps, and they they wanted it out and they wanted it out quick. And I think if you want it out and you want it out quick, you go to the Post, not the Times, right? And you go, it, it's all strategic. And I've I've been in the you know, researching how the the NBA may or may not wink, wink, link leak stories, and it's usually at outlets that are not affiliate are non sports outlets. That's almost you know. There's been four or five of these scandals, and if you look at the leaks, um, you know, two have been at the Post, two big ones. This one included. Uh, one was a financial was Bloomberg. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other two, but like it's not ESPN or Turner. It's it's where can we get this out? To where you know it's all it's all strategy. Like the NBA and and Stern really knew how to get it out and get it out the right way. And in this case, get it out quick. One of the things, like the sort of big picture thing, I've been like mulling as I lie in bed at night after listening to this podcast, however many times I've done it now, is this idea of the golden goose. It's the uh, title of uh, episode seven, I believe, and it refers to a quote that. Mark Cuban um, had about, you know, the reason why he doesn't, and he's a big time, you know, character, both in the, you know, podcast and, and anyone who's a basketball fan knows his like sort of history with refereeing and his uh, outspokenness over the years. Um, but, you know, uh, as you, um, um, you know, explained in the podcast, he never really like puts that much effort into like coming out and, and, and you know, changing things in any major way. And when asked, you know, sort of why he doesn't try to like testify or sue the NBA or whatever he, he can do with all of his billions of dollars, he says, I can't do that. I don't want to kill the golden goose. And that just like kind of hit me because it made me realize it's not that like people don't know this story necessarily. A lot of people, you know, inside and, and outside the NBA probably do, but they're sort of just cool with it because <laughs> this is such a huge industry that makes so much money for so many people that you know, both, both owners and players alike and, you know, league office. Um, but even it goes down to like the idea of the fans and like, 
I think a lot of us as fans growing up sort of like had some idea of some of this stuff. We all remember, you know, the 2002 Western Conference Finals. And even before that, as a kid's watching Michael Jordan, it was always Michael Jordan gets calls that other players don't. Like they would come right out and say, like, this is not a completely fairly officiated game. And we all sort of heard that every single Bulls game that we watched. And we accepted it and we kept watching. <laughs> so I guess my question, and like this is kind of a vague open-ended one, but like in terms of like if you think this is ever going to change, if the system is ever going to be reformed, do you think that's ever going to happen? Or is it sort of like everyone from the top of the league to the fan watching games, if, if it turns out that the NBA was much more like professional wrestling and these games were basically just scripted and staged like would we really care would everyone just be like well as long as we're all making money and we're all you know getting our little drug our escapist uh couple hours in front of the tv every night like would it would we just keep accepting it i think my hope is that with whistleblowers a first step that within you know i i'll give it a decade that there's we we can shrink like right now there's such a a large chasm of trust like there's such a there's so much distrust in in the nba and basketball as a system and as a sport um you know and and doesn't mean we don't watch it but if you watch i mean if you really if, again twitter talk about drugs Twitter's a, a powerful one um and one that i actually quite enjoy but <laughs> the comment the commentary during nba games and just officials in general it's just always the same thing right there's, I think there's very few people that, that believe that, that NBA referees call, make every call um, unbiasedly. I just don't think that most, most fans believe that line of thought pre-whistleblower or post. So I think what we deserve as fans is just you know, some real transparency. And I, I just hope that in 10 years, the referees are, there's just a system in place where they aren't, uh, graded by the NBA at least, you know, where they're not like directly, directly employed by the NBA, where at least like, I mean, if they could just fake it a little bit at this point, that would be wonderful. You know, Adam Silver, if you're listening out there, come on, man, just give us something. Give us something to believe that, that you're not in control and puppeteering the outcomes of these games. So it, it's tough to say, like, I, do I think that it's ever going to be, you know, 100%? No, I don't. Um, I don't think it's possible with basketball, which is another interesting thing about the sport. There's just so much ambiguity in what constitutes a foul that I think it's going to be impossible. Because even if, if three referees are doing their darndest, it's sometimes, you know, it's just humans are humans. You know, referee hates Joel Embiid, hates Giannis, hates LeBron, hates whoever. You know, that, that subconscious dislike is going to affect the outcome in some way. So you can't, baseball is going to have robot umpires soon. And umpires are really, really going to play a very, very, like such an incredibly small role in determining like their missteps, like the Angel Hernandez's of baseball are going to become so irrelevant. It's going to be a beautiful thing in my, as a baseball fan for me, because yeah, it's going to be technology driven and robot, like this part of the sport that, you know, it has so much sway over what we actually want, which is the players determine the outcome of the game is going to become really, really marginalized. Um, whereas in the NBA, it's just, there's really no, you can't have robots ump a game. You know, I, I was, I joked that the better system might be have players call their own fouls. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe we do it that way, but really, 
I, I don't I don't think we're ever going to get to that point. I think as basketball fans, we just have to keep pushing to try and get the league to change and to try and you know continue to improve the system. Uh, which again, Adam Silver's done it an okay. You know, I'll give him a four point seven out of ten. Uh, you know, two minute rules, stupid, but like at least he tried something. You know, I think it's good that referees are at this point no longer all from Delaware County. Like that's a check. That's a plus. Um, and I think it's good that you don't. No disrespect to that wonderful part of the world. <sighs> good, old, good old Delco. But I think you know, there's you don't recognize referees the way you did. You know, we we're joking before we got on about Joey Crawford and about these referees who are such a part of the show. The referees should not be a part of the show. The referees yeah, should Dick be in the Bavetta. shadows. Yeah. yeah, the Bavettas and Crawfords are no longer as big of a part of the show as they once were. So those are all pluses, uh, but I think we have a long way to go, and I don't know, truthfully, if we'll ever get there. Fascinating. All right, Tim, we know you got stuff to take care of. Thanks so much for hopping on today. Tell us uh, where the audience can follow you, what you're working on, anything you want to plug. So it's the Whistleblower Podcast. You can find it anywhere you would find podcasts in Apple and Spotify, all those places. Anything else we want to know? Uh, where are you online on Twitter, Instagram, any of that stuff? I'm on Twitter at Tim Lake Sports. The, the old Instagram is Timstagramming. Um, I'm more active on Twitter than IG. My wife you know, made me take down all my IG photos, and um, I have to remain a man of mystery because of the <laughs> subject matter I'm dealing with. But, sure. yeah, I'm, I'm, on the, I'm on the social medias. Really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, you know, Whistleblower Podcast, search it wherever you find your podcasts, and tell your friends yeah Thanks well for that's all minutes, that's man. that's all we're doing these days and yeah i really yeah. appreciate you coming on and, and just thank you for the podcast it's like really has just you know we, we joke how it's like it's a post whistleblower and a pre-whistleblower world that we're that we like you <laughs> know it's our dividing out. line yeah, yeah so yeah yeah amazing work thanks so much tim congrats tim and uh enjoy the rest of that nba season we know you'll be watching appreciate it boys you can listen to switch, switch. 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 switch.